0: Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People highlights the interconnectedness of sexual health and mental health, and we interview people who have lived experiences with various mental health challenges as well as navigating STI stigma and sexual health-related stigma as well. I also interview experts in the field and people who have experiences on the working side of sexual health, mental health. And today's guest is Orion. Orion, I am going to ask that you introduce yourself. I watched that four minute video that you just posted onto your Instagram uh, and you have a lot of intersecting identities and I don't want to miss anything. So I'm gonna go ahead and let you introduce yourself, and then I'll get into why we're talking today.
1: Okay. Yeah. Hi, my name is Orion Queer, um, and I'm a queer and trans affirmative therapist. Um, I'm trans masculine, non-binary. I'm um, pansexual. Um, I'm also non-monogamous. A member of the BDSM community, um, and um, I enjoy like working with folks of all of those communities in therapy.
0: All right, so I counted seven. Was that that seven uh, different identifiers? I think so. (laughs) All right, as I'll introduce myself, I'm a, here we go, cisgendered, heterosexual, non monogamous, able bodied, upper lower class, black. I don't have a seventh. (laughs) A podcaster, I guess. (laughs) We'll go with that. But uh, the reason that I wanted to connect with you was because I got to hear you on a friend's podcast yesterday. Um, I attended the live recording and I really appreciated what you had to say. Um, What stood out to me more than anything was uh, the main difference between coaching and therapy, but there are so many other aspects of uh, what you have to bring to a conversation in this space that I would like to highlight. Uh, While this podcast has historically served people who have been living with herpes, there is an ongoing theme that sexual health is mental health in my experience of talking to everyone. And on a recent survey, um, people just kind of wanted to know who has herpes, if you will, in a sense of uh, there's not representation of alternative lifestyles uh, outside of the heteronormative society that we live in um, for people talking about like, how are people navigating relationships and their mental health and um, different aspects of sex? outside of the heteronormative um, messaging that we receive. So when I heard, I heard queer therapists and you had me there and I wanted to just bring you on uh, to speak to a lot of that. So starting out, uh, why is there so little representation of uh, non-heteronormative presentation of sex sexuality period in the medical space, mainstream media go.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. You know, I it's very frustrating. It's it's very frustrating even, you know, for me going through graduate school. Um, here I am learning, you know, what I'm learning in my classes is all focused on, you know, pertaining to the sort of typical, um, like white you know, cisgender heteronormative, um, person and couple. Um, and, you know, even, you know, I took couples therapy classes and of course, like we're all talking about monogamous couples in those classes. And there's very, very little discussion, if any, in any of the classes about how, um, you know, so many of us are non-monogamous, are kinky, are living, you know, alternative, um, you know, have you know, aren't in a couple necessarily, um, and um, and you know, I think it's really unfortunate that I've been left to have to translate all of that. Um, you know, I have to translate everything that I learned in school to to pertain to, to to my life and to the life of my clients. And the thing is, is you know, you know, being queer and trans. I mean, we had plenty. I had plenty of other queer and trans um, uh, classmates. You know, and. And a lot of us are non-monogamous in the queer and trans community. I mean, not everyone, of course, but, like, it's much more common. Um, And so here we are, you know, with, you know, and I was, you know, started out in an LGBT specialization, um, which I actually ended up switching into a general specialization. But, you know, I was in an LGBT specialization, you know, with mostly a lot of LGBT classmates. And so the classes weren't even made for us, even though... Specialization was supposed to be for us. Um, and here we are learning, you know, not actually learning about um, our own communities in our classes. Um, it's very frustrating.
0: I have a question about that. So, when you say that the classes weren't made for you, what do you mean? Can you go into a little bit more detail there?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I'm a trans person uh, myself, so I have lived experience, you know, as, as a trans person. But then here I am in class, like, you know, supposedly in an LGBT specialization, and yet I feel like I'm learning Trans 101 being taught to me as if, you know, as if I'm like a cisgendered person who's never heard of it before. Um, you know, so why am I paid to take a class that's teaching me about, you know, my own personhood by someone who's cisgender? By <laughs> a cisgender professor, right? So, um, yeah, it's just kind of like, okay, it's
0: a little bit. I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never considered that because when I think about, uh, like, going through the process of becoming a therapist and the schooling that's involved, I'm under the impression that you're learning to navigate the lived experiences of LGBT community members, not be taught, like, the basics. Here's what the L stands for. Here's what the G stands for. Like, is that kind of what your experience has been?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, through... I think really a lot of my learning has come from, you know, translating all of this stuff that I'm learning into applicable what's applicable to my life and through that experience then realizing, oh, okay, this is what my clients would need. Um and, you know, making that accessible. So that's something I care about. It's like, you know, taking that information and, and making it more accessible. Like for example, you know, attachment theory I find really, really um, useful. Um it's kind of gaining popularity right now as well. People are learning about it. Um but the vast majority of the information on attachment styles are focused on, you know, this heteronormative um, monogamous couple. So a lot of people are looking to those books and resources for help for themselves and just don't see themselves in there. So I can actually take that information, translate that for my client and help them to, um, you know, still be able to benefit from the theories because they're really helpful. Um, you know, not everyone is able to, like, translate that material.
0: And something I've learned throughout the course of these podcast interviews that I've done is that identity validation is, one, suicide prevention, but it's so important that people be seen. And I'm learning just how important representation is in any space, really. And for these spaces to not be inclusive to LGBT members, uh, such as like the, where people are getting a bulk of very, very good information, such as attachment theory, like not being seen in a space where something can be so useful to you is invalidating to your identity, which I personally believe is detrimental to one's mental health. Do you have anything to, uh, add to that?
1: Absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of what goes into suicide prevention is, like, helping people to, um, you know, just learn how to accept themselves and, and ex- express themselves, and express themselves genuinely. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, and when we talk about attachment styles, one thing that uh, stood out to me the most was reading the anxious attachment style, the avoidant attachment style, and insecure. That's this book you're talking about, right? Is that the attachment theory we're we yeah, about? Yeah, there's
1: there's there's a bunch of different books. That, yeah, there is one um, attachment. Yeah, that's the book. Yeah. All right, all right.
0: <laughs> so as I read that, I did see a lot of uh, the the common theme for me was that men are more often avoidant, women are more often anxious, and then to be secure, you kind of have to break your pattern by doing the other thing to balance it out. So, if you were to sort of give us an overall summary here that was inclusive to uh, different identities, what would that look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know it's great that you bring up that book because it is one of the most popular, one of the most you know common ones people read, and it is really um, like rudimentary. It it's not, um, yeah, very cis heteronormative, very mono monogamous-oriented, or um, and, yeah, gendered. I mean, you know, uh, it, people of any gender could be avoidant or anxious or disorganized, also a third option, um, disorganized attachment, which, you know, there's almost no literature on that whatsoever because people kind of figure, well, if you're disorganized, you're kind of like, you know, shit out of luck, too far gone, go get help yourself, we don't know what to do with you. Um, and I have a disorganized attachment, and I'm slowly working on becoming um, more secure, more and more secure these days. Um, and so, you know, what happened to me before I learned more about psychology was I was reading about attachment theory and being like, well, I think I'm anxious. No, I think I'm avoidant. No, I think I'm anxious. Like, And I'd be filling out the test. There's a lot, there's like a test in that book. Um, the thing is, is I would always get anxious on the test, but it's because um, you know, a lot of the questions weren't relevant to me. There'd be questions like, you know, do you get jealous when someone, you know, when you're like a partner, like smiles at a waitress at the restaurant or like, um, you know, yeah, things like that. Or like, oh, are you trying, like, are after three months of dating, do you still tell your, you know, do you still tell your person that you're like still looking around? And I'm like, well, I'm always like, I'm non-monogamous always. So these questions don't pertain to me. So what do I write, true or false, right? And then the test is going to come out wrong. Um, So like, it doesn't work. And um, I mean, once I actually realized more about, you know, when I learned more about the theories, I was able to realize, oh, I have a disorganized attachment. That's why, like, I relate to both the anxious and the the avoidant. Um, and I, you know, I think disorganized attachment is really stigmatized, but actually, it's probably, to be honest, probably the most common one. Because, like, any time that we are raised in an environment where our caretakers are also the ones who are causing us harm and abusing us either emotionally verbally physically or sexually um we are gonna have it uh, we're gonna come at that with a disorganized attachment because the person who's supposed to love us is also the person who's causing us harm that's how it's created um it's a normal natural outcome of abuse the person
0: who Who's supposed to be loving us? Wait, the person who's loving us is causing us harm. Is that what you said? Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what we learn growing up, and then we become adults, and now we look for a person causing us harm to love us. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yeah, it can look like that. It can look at a bunch of different ways. Basically, like it. You start to connect love with fear. So, like as a child. When you're scared, who are you? Who is? Who's the kid going to go to? Your parents. Your parent. You're supposed to go to your parents for security. But then, if that person that you go to in a moment of fear for security is also the person that's causing you the most harm, then you're going to connect those feelings of love and fear together. So it can look a variety of different ways as an adult. But one way that that could pan out is really. The more that you love someone, the more scared you are of them. And um, more intense feelings of love and closeness come along with more intense feelings of fear and insecurity and danger because you have red alarms going off and saying, oh, no, this person's getting too close. Are they going to get me? Are they going to come get me? Are they going to hurt me? Mm. Um. Yeah.
0: What does healing from that look like? How do you once you identify, all right, I'm disorganized attachment style, there aren't resources to support you in getting through that, yet this is the most common attachment style that is like not really talked about. When you're anxious, again, in cis-heteronormative uh, context, or when you're avoidant, there are all these things that you can do, but when it's like just jumbled together and mixed in in this disorganized attachment style we don't really have a manual to work from unless you got something that I don't know about but what 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 you got for me well like, I think you know I, I actually love working
1: with disorganized attachment Um and I think that therapy is really you know, one of the most helpful things if you if you feel like you do have disorganized attachment. Basically, you have a relational wound. And I kind of, we talked, I talked a little bit about this on a podcast last night, but um, when we are, you know, when we are mistreated by our caretakers as children, that's a relational wound. And so the way that we heal a relational wound is by learning to relate again in a safe environment um, with someone who isn't going to take advantage of us or abuse us, right? So then we have, like, a corrective experience. So therapy can be a place where you learn to relate again. Um, and it is, it is different than, you know, if someone has an anxious attachment style or an avoidant attachment style, those people, um, they grew up in an environment where they figured out methods that actually worked in order for them to, like, gain their parents' acceptance and love. So, you know, if if that either means consistently reaching out, reaching out, reaching out, being anxious, it worked. Your parents responded to that, and you had a certain level of stability. Um, Same with avoidant. If you just backed off and you, like, let your parent, you know, you didn't come to your parents for help. You didn't ask them for help, then it worked. You had a certain level of stability. But with a disorganized attachment, there was no stability. So you did whatever was needed in the moment. You were living in chaos. And so you are going to pull out whatever tools you have in your toolbox. You've got them all at the ready. And whatever's going on, you pull this one out, you pull that one out, you pull this one out. You have more triggers. So you might be anxious in one moment. You might be avoidant in another um, because you're just doing whatever works. You're like at peak survival mode. So how do you fix that? You have to learn to kind of let go of that like survival um, coping mechanism. And you have to trust that if i take a moment to pause and step back and breathe nothing's going to come out and get me and the only way that you can practice that is with a real person
0: so yeah. let's just keep practicing <laughs> okay and speaking of practicing like i'm practicing presence and listening to everything that you're saying and there's all these moments it's like uh playing double dust jump rope and you're just waiting on the right moment to jump in and ask a question and then you say something else and I'm like "Ooh, I want to ask about that <laughs> but, um, it sounds like therapy is useful uh, no matter where you are of course but when we look at uh, the people who don't necessarily know where they fit in, who aren't having their identities validated in the text in the podcast in the audio books in any of the go to resources that we would normally seek out in order to figure out all right, well, who am I, where do I fit in, what does this mean for me? then an ideal starting point would be to pursue someone who can support you in connecting these dots or finding the information, or has the experience to process the information in a way that can support you in your healing. And here we are with a queer therapist. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) So uh, for people who, because one of the things something positive for positive people does is connect people to therapists and i have not let me make sure Let I me. Mean, i'm thinking back before i say the wrong thing i haven't interviewed any queer therapists before on the podcast so uh i kind of have an idea of what the answer is and just again it goes back to identity validation but what is the importance of the value of working with a queer therapist
1: yeah well so i think you know for one like i have an understanding of the need to translate material and theories um you know other therapists might not understand that so they're not they're you know maybe not able to um you know make those shifts in their perceptions um in order to understand that like you know a lot of a lot of people hide their have to feel like they have to hide their um, identities from their therapists, or they don't talk a lot about it um, for example, you know, someone is non monogamous or um, a member of the BDSM community, they might be afraid to mention that to their therapist because their therapist could, you know, perceive that as a problem or even a symptom of their mental illness, which has happened to me. I
0: had a therapist
1: who um,
0: invalidated their I, identity.
1: Yeah, learning that I was non monogamous, like, was like, oh, that's because you have commitment issues. And I was like, no,
0: But that, that's that's so much <laughs> that's <not> more <laughs> there's so much more of a commitment though to be non monogamous, to see yeah. you know, multiple people and make that many commitments. And it's so, you know, wild to me that uh different ways of being are just completely shut off by, you know, the, the credible individuals of institutions that we're taught to go to In uh order to uh, get the support that we need for problems, challenges that we're having.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, I was going to ask you this. Ah, this is out of order. It's so out of order. But uh, I would like to know, um, you mentioned earlier something about foregoing licensure. I don't know that you mentioned that on here if it was last night, but you went through uh, the training, school, work, And you decided you would be more useful without going through licensure. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I think that for me, what I've seen in people that I speak to, connect with, interview, they too... Don't feel like they can go to their therapist or people that they should be able to go to about certain things and they feel more comfort around coming to me as a dude with a podcast and talking to me about stuff that they don't even talk to their therapist about. And I wonder if there's something there with rapport or if there's something about having these shared lived experiences that allows for people to feel more safe and vulnerable to connect with someone. Because when I look at you, and when I hear you speak, I think to myself, wow, I get the expertise of a therapist, but I get the experience of a queer person. So bringing those pieces together, here's where we get you. Here's where we get um, a little bit of both like you said you do that translating and you are at that intersection the gap of experience and expertise
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah so um yeah there's a lot of reasons why i chose to to divest from licensure and um yeah one of the reasons was you know it it, it uh, with a license, you know, I'm, I'm forced to kind of um, work against my values in a lot of ways. I mean, for one, I'm an abolitionist, and I don't want to work with the police. Um, and having a license means that, you know, if someone is suicidal, I'm legally obligated to, um, you know, call the police and have a welfare check. And we all know that that has actually resulted in, in people dying. And you know the, the point of welfare checks is to, to you know help someone live longer, not kill them faster. Um, and unfortunately, you know it, it, there's a lot there's a lot of things like that that you know with a license, um, you're legally obligated to follow certain um, you know laws and ethics that are you know that are that come from you know, this oppressive um, system of psychology is mainstream psychology that's rooted in white supremacy, in homophobia, transphobia, classism, ableism, um, fatphobia. I mean, so, you know, do I want to be working in that system? Like, I don't want to. Um, And, you know, not only that, but then also for me, like, because I'd have to work, you know, underpaid or, or like, for free (laughs) volunteer they they don't call it volunteering they just call it a traineeship but like you're volunteering for these clinics you know whose ceos are making plenty of money um for up to like three years in order to accrue enough hours and if you have to if if you're not if you're not lucky enough to have like parents or a partner who's you know paying your way during that time and you have to work a full-time job that's going to take you longer than three years to get your license it's also for me it doesn't feel right Uh, I can't afford to do that
0: so what I'm hearing is that you are dismantling these structures and these systems by you've gone in you've seen how they work and now you're disengaging you're not making a conscious decision to just conform to the the role that Is assigned to you within these harmful systems like you're choosing to actively step away, start your own practice of being able to more hands on yourself, align with your values and support the people who uh, these systems are harming and doing so in an efficient way and doing so with, of course, empathy and. Uh, a mirrored almost I would say mirrored experience in a lot of instances given your seven overlapping uh, intersections of identities (laughs) right so um, this is what we too can do as people who aren't necessarily in the system but we are in need of services that these oppressive systems and structures have to provide for us we can take the extra step do the extra labor to seek out someone who is actively trying to dismantle the harmfulness of that system. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who've gone to a therapist who've been invalidated in their identities or even in the healthcare field period, which I know that you have experience with as well. And so uh, the, the purpose of Interviews like this and bringing on people like you is to give like a compass, a roadmap of some sort so that people can find themselves in the spaces that they need in order to begin whatever the healing process is that they need for themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, transitioning over to. Uh, different areas of people that you work with. You've mentioned uh, that you work with and are a member of the BDSM community. And so with that, I'm learning that there is a very healing aspect of kink and BDSM that can occur for uh, survivors of various kinds of trauma. Can I ask you a little bit of what it looks like to work with people who are part of the BDSM community in support of their healing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think, you know, it can be a touchy subject because um, I think a lot of us are intuitively, whether we realize it or not, always seeking to heal from our trauma and integrate our trauma into our, you know, into our um, being. Um, I think all of us are intuitively seeking that and so whether we know it or not we're looking for for ways to work through it um, and so a lot of people you know end up trying to work through that through dynamics and BDSM and that's not to say and I do want to be careful in saying that not everyone in the BDSM community has a trauma history and not and having a trauma history doesn't make someone interested in the BDSM community I think that's one important distinction that needs to be made but it's that a lot of us, some of us do, and that for some of us can be, um, you know, really, really healing or we can get stuck in, um, you know, sort of maladaptive coping mechanisms and patterns and then that can actually be hurting us Um, and that can happen if we are not really aware of what we're doing or why we're doing it and we're getting caught in an old pattern caught in an old pattern of abuse or trauma. And so that's why I actually think it's really important to talk about BDSM in therapy with our therapist, because it's just like any other relationship in our lives. Um, You know, because I think a lot of times we get caught on you know, only romantic relationships being where our childhood trauma comes out. But actually, our, our, our trauma comes out everywhere with our friendships or in our work environments and, you know, everything. Um, and, of course, it's going to come out in our EDSM dynamics as well. And so if we're aware of what's going on and we can talk about it and we can talk about um, why we're doing something or what what we're, like, looking for, then a lot of healing can come out of that.
0: Mm. So I want to repeat back what you said the way that I heard it. So in BDSM, there's the opportunity for a conscious seeking and uh, um and achieving of something that we naturally pursue at an unconscious level.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
0: all right, yeah. Perfect. Uh, the word BDSM kink, I think it it alerts. Uh, what, what that's not the word I'm looking for. It elicits a particular visceral response from a lot of people just given, again, the heteronormative thunderstorm that just rains over society and that makes us kind of, uh, or be a little bit intimidated by it, so to speak. Okay. And what I'm learning, the more that I engage with people, part of the BDSM community as I conduct these interviews and ask questions, is that it's not even always about sex and yeah. even with the conversation piece like negotiations are a very useful uh structure for talking about sex sexual health and mental health and relationships, period. What I hear in these negotiations, I hear boundaries, I hear consent, I hear how to ask for what you need, I hear how to say no, I hear how to receive a no, I hear how to manage relationships, how to identify abuse, and most importantly, how to seek out support in the event that a boundary is violated, or if you are a little bit uncertain or disorganized about uh, something that you just may not be really clear on, there are resources, there are individuals, there are spaces and groups where you can go to for whatever the support is that you need. So my question to you is, do you have any sort of, uh, as a translator, essentially, do you have any barriers or do you have any tips for guiding these conversations if you're someone who is curious or if you're someone who has that... Uh, visceral reaction to hearing the words kink or BDSM, like how do you initiate this conversation? or how do you know that you need to take any sort of steps to step into kink and BDSM? Mm,
1: yeah, those are good questions. Um, yeah, so I think if you're someone who's interested but um, you know scared or it's new for you, um, I think the most important thing to remember is like it's all it's all about consent and it's about looking for what you want. Right. And, and actually learning how this is why this is the healing aspect like why it can be so healing is you're learning to identify your deepest needs and desires and ask for them directly. Um, you, and you learn you say how that? to say, can you say that no again? to things. Yeah, <laughs> you're learning how to you're learning how to um, identify your deepest needs and desires and then ask for them directly. Whatever that is. And so it's actually much more open than you think. BDSM doesn't all look the same for every person. There's every possible way to engage um, and every possible kink out there, right? Um, it's, and it's also about being able to hear somebody else's deepest desires and needs and say yes or no to it, which is so empowering, especially for trauma survivors to learn how to to talk about my deepest needs and desires and hear about the other person's deepest needs and desires and say no I don't want to do that sorry but I want to do this do you want to do this no I don't want to do that how about this okay yes let's do that that process of that that it's like for me it was like un, un, uncorking like a bottle or like taking you know taking out a dam and just being like oh I can just say whatever I want and need and the other person can say yes or no. And then they do the same. Like, it's beautiful. It's very healing.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't exclusively have to reside in the context of BDSM or behind closed doors. No. And what I'm also hearing is that this is a very useful way of, uh, of, of facing any fears of rejection being able to enter yeah. these spaces and ask for what you need and maybe not get it, but be offered an alternative yeah. or to be able to have someone ask you for something and be able to practice saying no. And then you be the person who offers an alternative. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. That's yeah, very empowering in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am also curious about your work in, uh, with, with people who are non-monogamous, do you find people who come in, they know they're non-monogamous or they think they're non-monogamous or do they think that it's a problem that they're non-monogamous? I'm sure you're probably going to say all the above, but is, is that is that something that you find in talking with your clients?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, people are all over the spectrum Some people, uh, you know, know that they're non-monogamous and others are, you know, trying that out for the first time, or nervous about it, interested. Um, I think, you know, it can be a really hard process to undo all of the things that we were raised to believe, which is that, like, monogamous, you know, head over heels, passionate, love at first sight kind of thing that we see in, like, the holiday movies and all of that. Like, to kind of realize that that's just not like an accurate representation of life love or reality and also that there are other options out there there's so much brainwashing that we have to undo in order to like love ourselves enough to
0: try it out can you imagine a holiday non-monogamous movie like 15 (laughs) christmas houses parties to go to yeah and see everybody's families (laughs) um i uh i wanted to ask you about um Ah, uh, I lost it, but we'll just go on to the next thing that comes up into my mind, which is um, if someone comes to you, or if someone's in this space where they're not quite sure if they are queer or interested in um, n- not a heterosexual relationship. And they don't know how to go about exploring or initiating that, or even asking the questions like, what's a good starting point for that person?
1: Yeah, so I would say if you're in that place, like just know that, you know, d- don't worry about the end destination. Like don't worry about trying to figure out like, am I trans or not?" for example. It's more about start with like what feels good to you. You know, So if wearing certain clothing feels good to you, then try that on. Or if you're interested in trying to date someone of a different gender and you're not sure, don't worry about trying to figure it all out. Try it. Go guide yourself based on how you feel about something. So if something feels good and it feels like it'll make you happy and it brings you joy, then try it out and figuring out your own identity or your label that can come later there really is no um rush for that Mm.
0: all right that's good that's a very good uh response because what i'm hearing here is more presence like practicing presence Uh and being with yourself being with your emotions and giving yourself space to explore and express whatever your identities are Uh yeah
1: um
0: now, out of curiosity, do you work with cisgendered heterosexual people like can s- straight identifying people pursue a queer therapist
1: yeah absolutely i I work with anyone who wants to work with me, so um you yeah, i don't I'm not gonna turn anyone down for being cisgender and straight, especially you know because i I do enjoy working with like really all marginalized um, communities who, you know, have been marginalized by Western psychology and are looking for, um, you know, someone who is queer or trans or non-monogamous or, you know, member of the BDSM community or an abolitionist. Um, So I'm happy to work with with anyone and even someone who's questioning their identity, but isn't sure. Like, yeah, I'm happy to, to work with them or even a straight couple who is, in, in the BDSM community and isn't able to talk about these things with their therapist. Um, you know, I'm happy to work with
0: them as well. Yeah. In that statement that you just mentioned at the end there, like not being able to talk about, uh, like if a straight couple is in BDSM and not able to talk about it with someone, how important is it <laughs> that we have and allow space to be able to speak about these things that we feel like have to be uh, secret or withheld from people?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, it, 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 when we aren't able to talk about something, it festers. Um, and it also doesn't get any light and love and healing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's and, and I think, you know, that's why, I mean, BDSM it, dynamic is a perfect example of, like, it's like any other relationship that needs nurturing and care. Um, so if you aren't able to talk about it openly maybe talk about things that you're struggling with or questioning or whatever, have curiosity about or exploring, if you're not able to bring that up with your therapist, then how are you going to work through those things? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and I do want to encourage people, that even if they're afraid that of bringing it up with their therapist, because maybe their therapist doesn't have any experience. However, I think that it's worth trying. It's always worth trying because People don't have to know everything about something in order to be supportive. And if you have a good therapist, then they're gonna be okay with the fact that they don't know and they're gonna be open to learning. Yeah. Um, and it's actually a great way to know if you have a good therapist or not. Can you bring this up to them? and how do they react?
0: Yeah. And
1: you have your answer. You know, do you need to find a new therapist or is this person opening to open to learning and happy to talk about it with you?
0: Well, finding a therapist is already so challenging as it is when especially we don't have uh, benefits and insurance that may always cover therapy and we have to pay out of pocket. And given the state of the world right now and all of the uncertainty that exists, as it does, a lot of people are really struggling to not just get by and um, like make ends meet and survive, but also to... in Engage with the necessary yet luxurious um, aspect of just being able to heal themselves so like healing as necessary as it is for many of us is in fact a luxury and I hear this phrase sliding scale often and when I hear that I hear it from a therapist who offers services for $220 per session cash And then their sliding scale takes it down to one hundred and sixty dollars. And it's like, well, first off, who can afford that? That is listening to this podcast, because I know a lot of us uh, are in situations where like that's often a month of groceries. That's and that's all of our expenses uh, combined. Uh, And especially if we want to see a therapist on a weekly basis like that's that's rent. (laughs)
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's really unfortunate. I I feel really, um, passionate about making therapy accessible. It's really important to me. And I also benefited from the science scale of other, um, therapists or even have gotten in the past, um, free therapy from people during um, times of need, you know, for, for, you know, temporary amounts of time to get myself through difficult times. I've always lived below the poverty line, so, um, I, I'm offering yeah sliding scale from fifty dollars up to one fifty. Um and I don't question people on what they can afford. Um that doesn't, doesn't doesn't feel ethical to me about that. I let people figure out what they can afford themselves. Um and I
0: basically offer like a a, a guide to kind of figure out what you need. Like if
1: you are requesting like fifty to seventy five, then um what you're saying is like I need I need my communities to support me, um, and I'm covering, like, basic cost of therapy. So my therapist will be able to, like, make, make ends meet. And then, you know, if I'm able to afford 80 to 120 then I'm paying kind of, like, a full cost of therapy um, for myself. And then if I'm paying 120 to $150, i am paying therapy for myself, and I'm paying a little extra so that the therapist can then afford to give therapy for Um, Someone who can't afford it and then I'm also flexible to go lower than 50 for people who um, You know can't afford the 50 Um, We'd have to negotiate that but you know that and I have a certain number of slots available for lower-income folks um, and it also depends on how many like slots I can fill at the higher price, but um, Yeah, I just really believe in flexibility in that Mm
0: -hmm. and what I'm imagining is that you know if you're someone who has these compound overlapping identities um like if you're um if you are also trans and maybe you're in an environment where it isn't safe or you just aren't supported that then it would be more feasible for you to um, work with that person at the lower level of the sliding scale is that accurate i don't want to put words in your mouth but just kind of to give people an idea
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I I do want to like prioritize low income spots for queer and trans folks and people of color
0: okay yeah uh oh good segue into the difference between like if a person needs therapy if a person needs a support group if a person needs to go listen to a podcast read a book go outside for some fresh air or if they need to utilize a coach how do we identify the differences here because what I'm hearing is you've gone through the process of becoming a therapist you have decided that you would be more helpful to people by foregoing licensure and that sort of like that removal of your credentials, I guess is that is that kind of accurate? What it means to forgo uh, licensure? Okay, you're shaking your head. Yes, huh? um, that kind of puts you on the same level or playing field as someone who would identify as a life coach or who would market themselves like someone who's good at marketing. Hey, I can help you. Just pay me X dollars, and I got you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the difference uh, between life coaching and, um, you know, a therapist is a life coach could, um, you know, could be anyone. You don't have to go through any sort of particular education or certification process. Um, Anyone can just call themselves a life coach. And so if you're looking for a life coach, um, you know, you do want to kind of ask them what their experience level is. And you also kind of want to know, like, what kind of coaching they're giving. So, um, you know, usually coaching is, is, is around a specific thing. Um, like maybe you need help with your career, you know, or, um, be more organized or maybe, you know, in a particular area of expertise that you're wanting, um, you know, like there are some people who are like, um, polyamorous relationship coaches, um, you know, which I think like is a super great resource, right? But They're only going to be able to, we're focusing on just your polyamorous relationship. We're not going to be going into mental health, right? So, um. You know, that being said, there are also some people who, like me, have gotten their master's in clinical psychology or their master's in social work, you know, and have decided to forego licensure and might market themselves as a life coach or as a therapist, Um, because I am allowed to market myself as a therapist, just not a psychotherapist, and I don't have a license and a license number. Um, but, um, you know, the important thing to me would be, oh, okay, well, you got your master's in psychology or in social work so you have the same exact education as as a therapist that's licensed there's no difference in the education it's just that you have foregone licensure so i think you know if you're trying to decide between a therapist or a life coach first i would say like what are you just what are you looking for um are you looking for you know help with your mental health in which case i think it'd be best to find someone who has that clinical experience um even if they've decided to divest from the licensure system, did they get, you know, did they get a master's degree or did they do some training? Um, or are you just looking for a specific thing like help with your polyamorous relationship? And then you can go to a polyamorous relationship coach and there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just about knowing what you're looking for, what you're trying to get out of it, and then finding someone that can meet that need for you.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful to, to hear it that way. Um, If you want to go for coaching, go for a specific thing. You don't necessarily need to go to therapy when you know what it is that you're looking for help in. Like, hey, I just need to focus on uh, this niche career and you as a coach are someone who helps people within this niche. Can you help me? Versus a therapist, you know, you may not know what you need. Like, you just know that something isn't right. You need to you need a general sense of direction. From there, And then you can just kind of set a foundation for yourself to where you can be like, boom, I know what I want. I want to coach for this. I want to coach for that. And I want to coach for this because I've seen coaches sort of um, like therapists in my past experiences don't like coaches because coaches market themselves uh, or basically coaches are stealing clients from therapists is basically how I've come to understand this beef between the two. And the reality is that a lot of people who are into coaching are just really good at marketing. And even for me as a podcaster, you know, people are very open and vulnerable with me in a way that if I were a coach... I would probably be someone that they see as having provided them with a lot more value than their therapist had, but it's simply because they feel more comfortable opening up to me in a way that I can see more accurately what their therapist is unable to see because they just don't have that that safety or that validation in their identity and the space that they need held for them in order to open up that way. I just remembered the question I wanted to ask you earlier, and it was about... Uh, like knowing if you're, oh my god! And then I lost it. I was gonna, I was gonna say something earlier, and I just was like, no, nah, this is flowing way too well. But uh, do you have anything that you want to add to what I just shared here? Um,
1: like there was some some other things about coaching and therapy that we talked about. That I wonder, um, you know, are helpful to add. Um, I can. Yeah, I just think, you know, one thing I want to say about it is yeah, I, do have, I, I do have more of an open-minded perspective about it than, you know, perhaps other people. I think there are, yeah, a lot of therapists who, like, look down on, like, licensed therapists who look down on life coaches and also who look down on um, non-licensed therapists. But let's be honest, you know, it's because, like, you know, going through grad school and then three years of, of um, you know, unpaid or underpaid, you know, abusive clinical training environments, and some people feel like because they went through all of that they're more entitled to something than other people but the reality is that like there are a lot of ways that you can educate yourself um and I don't necessarily think that going to grad school and getting a master's is like some sort of like you know epitome of education there are other ways to educate yourself on mental health Um, so I do think you know if if you're wanting to get help with your mental health, it is important to ask the therapist or coach about their experience level. Like, Don't ever forget that you have power here. You can ask people, like, what's your background? What's your education? Because if someone's advertising themselves as a life coach, but then when you ask them, and, they're, and it depends on what they're advertising for, but if they're saying, I'm a life coach and I can help you with your depression and anxiety and PTSD, and then you ask them, what's your experience level and they like didn't do any kind of education and mental health and you might be like, okay, maybe I'm going to look for somebody else. Hmm. Um, but maybe they have a lot of experience. Maybe they have lived experience and maybe they have, you know, found, you know, maybe they're like really um, educated on these topics and are able to help you better than a licensed therapist who like doesn't have that specialty. So I think the most important thing is learning about what you're looking for and trying to advocate for yourself Mm -hmm. and finding it
0: okay now on something positive for positive people we have this reoccurring theme that sexual health is mental health a lot of people very strongly identify with their sexuality to the point where any shift to that or invalidation of what their beliefs are about themselves as a sexual being it deeply impacts their mental health so I want to put you on the spot here and ask you what do you think about the statement sexual health is mental health
1: I totally agree I absolutely agree I think that it's really unfortunate that a lot of people are scared to talk about um, their sexual health and sexual dysfunction and their um, intimacy issues with their therapist because um, it's it's really important and it's often where all of our stuff comes out. Um, yeah, it's like a lot of a lot of sexual dysfunction is actually about emotional intimacy. Um, And about, like, not knowing how to connect emotionally. Um, And we need to work through that in therapy.
0: That was a very beautiful answer. And we can begin wrapping things up. Uh, I want for people to follow you on your Instagram account for sure. Uh, How can people find you?
1: yeah so you can find me on my instagram account orion queer therapy um and on my instagram account is um i have you know my email and my phone number on there and my website so if you're wanting to contact me about therapy um or if you're a therapist who's interested in talking about divesting from clinical licensure um you're also welcome to reach out as well
0: all right um see is there anything else that i need to say yeah like what any closing remarks that you have at all or like i i'm gonna add in the show notes how people can find you and um what your specializations are and the show description and all of that but yeah what, what else you got for us we got about seven minutes until this recording stops <laughs>
1: okay yeah let me
0: You're going to think of all yeah. stuff when you get off of here and you just <laughs> when you walk outside, you're going to be eating something and you're going to be like, "Oh, damn, yeah. I should have said. I should have told Courtney this."
1: Yeah. I think, you know, one thing I really always want to encourage people is um before you decide to fire your therapist and get a new one, um and work with you. <laughs> and work with me <laughs> or find you know someone else or whatever. Try try to work out what it is like try to tell your therapist directly what you need from them and actually to be honest that is what therapy is therapy is relational work I think we forget that we forget that therapy is relational work and we think we just come in and toss our stuff out and they fix it for us but it's actually relational work so learning learning how to say hey I actually need this from you or I when you say this it, it makes me uncomfortable or it makes feel triggered or activated or um, I need you to you know, reflect more and stop asking me questions uh, <laughs> something I said to my, my therapist a couple weeks ago like all of these um, you know when we get to practice that, practice with your therapist first because it's going to make it easier for you to practice that in your life with um, your partners, your friends, your co-workers um, your boss and um, especially if you're thinking of leaving a therapist, then think of it like this. It's like, well, if you're going to say goodbye to them anyway, why not try to talk about this difficult stuff and see where you go and get the practice? And then if you don't like how they respond to you, because they should respond well. They're a good therapist, regardless of how experienced they are in you know, queer stuff or trans stuff or anything. If they're a good therapist, they should be able to work through that with you. And if they can't, you have your answer and you learned a little bit more about them and maybe you want to find someone different
0: we can drop the mic right there Thank you so much, Orion. I'm so happy that we were able to do this, especially it's it's been less than 12 hours, I think, between you going from that recording into this one. So I thank you so much for just sharing space with me, sharing your experience and expertise on this podcast. And um, I wish you nothing but the best of success. And I hope that this at least gets people to consider reaching out to you for that 30-minute uh, needs assessment. Is that what you called it? Intake?
1: Intake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I get three thirty-minute intakes for the first. You know, just to kind of see. You're, you're welcome to ask me any questions you want. Um, to kind of figure out if we're a good fit for each other. And I'm also going to ask you questions like, what are your goals for therapy? What would you like to get out of it? Perfect. Um, to make sure that you know I can give you what you're
0: looking for. All right, Orion Queer Therapy on Instagram. Please go and follow them. Uh, this concludes this episode of Something Positive for People. Uh, what? This concludes <laughs> <laughs> I'm rusty. So hey, I, I haven't done an interview okay. since June, I believe. June was my last interview podcast. So I'm 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 a little rusty. We kicking the dust off with this one, but let's try this again. <clears throat> That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to, and share this podcast within your communities, on your social media platforms, and support us in our growth. Sexual health is mental health. That's the theme moving forward. And as we continue to uh, engage with experts and people who have lived experiences with not only sexual challenges and sex STI stigma and all of that but also with mental health challenges because these two are arguably the same thing and I'll fight anybody on that and if anybody wants to fight they can do so in the Instagram comments so we can get our engagement up because Instagram tripping alright now um, I I guess that's it (laughs) I need to close it All right, thank you again Orion and y'all can again go follow Orion, Orion Queer therapy
1: thank you so much for having me yeah